Well, good morning, everyone. It's really great to see you all. Thank you all uh, for coming along this morning. As Will said, uh, we're continuing our teaching series in Paul's letter to the Romans. And this morning, we're at chapter 4. So if you have a Bible there, we're reading from chapter 4, verse 1. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, we're at page 941. Or feel free just to listen along if you would prefer. Romans 4 and verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope so that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith As he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification.
Now, over the past three chapters, Paul has been explaining that all of us have a huge problem. The problem of our sin. All of the things in our lives that aren't holy. All of the things that fall short of God's standard of righteousness. Chapters 1 to 3 are almost like a courtroom scene. It's like the whole of humanity stands before the judge of all the earth, guilty as charged, because of our rebellion against him. Whether we're the sort of person who rejects the whole notion of God altogether, or whether we're the kind of person who's moral and good living, or whether we're religious, the verdict is exactly the same. Paul says that because of our sin, God is revealing his wrath against us, his just and appropriate response to the things that we do wrong, which ultimately means that we are facing an eternity of God's judgment. So we have a huge problem and we have an even greater need, the need to somehow make this right. Facing God's justice means we need to be justified. Now, Nick was talking to us last week about what being justified means. It really just means being made right with God, being in a right relationship with him, being given a not guilty verdict. So the first question that probably comes to mind is, what do I need to do to make that happen? How can I put things right? Well, in chapter 3, Paul says, There's nothing we can do. Only God himself can do it for us. He says that justification comes by faith, by believing in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this gospel of righteousness is all about, which was a radical idea for the Jews because they had always been taught that righteousness was all about what you did. So in chapter 4, he backs up his argument by giving an Old Testament example. Again, he's using a legal framework that ancient Rome was very familiar with. He's giving a legal precedent for justification by faith. And the person he points back to was Israel's most illustrious forefather, Abraham. He couldn't have picked a better example. He was the founding father of Israel. He was where it all began. God blessed him and he made him into this great nation, He gave his people an inheritance that would last forever. The Jews revered Abraham as the prime example of righteousness. He was even called the friend of God. They took it for granted that he had been justified because of what he did, because of the kind of person that he was. But Paul shows that that's not what the scriptures say at all. And Paul needed the Jewish Christians in this church in Rome to see that justification by faith was nothing new. This wasn't just an idea that he had invented all by himself. This wasn't a novelty. This actually went all the way back to the beginning. That is always how justification has worked. And by the same token, he also wanted the non-Jewish Christians in the church to understand what a rich spiritual heritage they had now come into, that they were now a part of, in Christ. It's almost as if Paul was unifying those two disparate strands of the church, which was very important if they were going to partner up with him in taking this incredible gospel across the Roman world. So what does he say about Abraham? How does he prove his case? 
Well, at the end of chapter 3, he explained how righteousness doesn't come through any of the things that the Jews relied on to stand in the right with God. It doesn't come by works. It doesn't come by circumcision. And it doesn't come through the law. So here, in chapter 4, he shows that Abraham wasn't justified because of any of those things either. In verses 1 to 8, he says he wasn't justified by his own works. In verses 9 to 12, he says he wasn't justified by circumcision. And in verses 13 to 17, he says he wasn't justified by the law. And then in verses 18 to 22, he emphasizes emphatically that he was only justified by faith. Which brings Paul to the climax of this chapter in verses 23 to 25, where he gets to the very core of the big idea that he's presenting here. That just like Abraham, all of us can be justified by faith as well. So firstly, in verses 1 to 8, he shows that Abraham wasn't justified by works. In other words, he didn't put himself in the right. If you look at Abraham's life in Genesis, he was a really upright kind of man. He wasn't perfect, of course, because none of us are, but he did his best. God called him to leave home and go to another land, and he did what he was told, And most of the time after that, he obeyed God's voice and he tried to do the right thing. And the Jewish rabbis taught that that's where Abraham's justification came from. From the things that he did. From the type of character that he had. And most of us tend to think that way as well, don't we? That trying our best to be good, in inverted commas, must count for something. Giving to charity... Maybe being a good friend, being kind to strangers, filling out our tax returns with complete honesty, using our recycling bins properly, maybe doing veganuary. One of my friends at school said to me once, I really believe that trying to live a good life is enough. I really believe that you can work your way to God if you really try hard enough. And we like to believe in hard work, don't we? If you've ever watched Dragon's Den, some of you might know Duncan Bannatyne. He's one of the the dragons. He's one of the investors. And he's a fascinating guy. Whenever he was growing up in Glasgow, Duncan Bannatyne lived in one room with his parents and brothers and sisters in a house they shared with six other families. He left school at, at 15 with no qualifications, and he spent his 20s moving from one job to another. He was so poor that he didn't have a bank account until he was 30 years old. But he decided that he was going to make something of himself. So he bought an ice cream van for £450. And once he had made a bit of money from that, he bought another one and another one. And eventually, he sold that business for £28,000. And he put the money that he made from that into the purchase of a nursing home. A business that he eventually sold for £26 million. And since then, he's expanded into health clubs, hotels and property and today it's estimated that Duncan Bannatyne is worth 200 million pounds it's not bad is it his teachers at school told him that he would never amount to anything but he worked and he worked and he worked to justify himself to all those people who said that he would never make it and you can't help feeling inspired when you hear a story like that 
It makes you think, I can get anywhere I want to. I can achieve anything I want if I work hard enough. But Paul says that's not how rightness with God happens. We can't work our way to him. Isaiah 64 says that in God's eyes, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All have sinned, Paul said in the last chapter, and come short of God's glory. We can't earn brownie points with God. Not even somebody as upright as Abraham was. Paul says that he didn't stand in the right by doing. He didn't stand in the right because of what his character was like, because of the good things that he did. He stood in the right only by believing. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's almost a financial term, isn't it? It was counted to him. It's like putting something in somebody's account. There's two ways that something can be credited to somebody. Either as wages, as something that's been earned, or as a gift. If salvation depended on works, then whenever God saved somebody, he would just be repaying what he owed that person, like an employer gives you your wages at the end of the week. Whenever I put my card into the ATM on a Friday and I check my balance, what's been counted in is there because I've worked the whole week to get it. But that's not the way God operates. God's not indebted to anybody. And we could never work long enough or work hard enough, however we try, to earn his justification. God counts us in the right as a free gift of his grace. Something that we could never earn. Something that's completely undeserved. And he does that simply because that is who God is. Because he loves us. And because he loves us, he doesn't only give us what we don't deserve. He also doesn't give us what we do deserve. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says that whenever Christ was reconciling the world to himself, when he was working to save us from God's wrath, instead of counting people's trespasses against them, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. And why did he do that? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The one and only perfect man, the only one who never fell short, personally took your sins and my sins on the cross. He took all of our filthy rags. He became sin with our sin so that we might become righteous with God's righteousness. And here, Paul brings in a second example to reinforce the case that he's making. And he cites the example of Israel's greatest king, King David. He quotes the 32nd Psalm, where David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, David was a great man. David was God's ambassador. David was described as a man after God's own heart. But just look at how short 
King David fell. He committed adultery with another man's wife. And then he had her husband put to death. David had no grounds for self-righteousness. The only thing that David could rely on was the loving character of the God who forgives our sin. Don't ever fall into the trap of relying on what you have done or what kind of person you are or what your character is like because it's never going to be enough. From these two core examples, from these two pillars of Israel's past, Paul proves that it's not and never has been by works. Then in verses 9 to 12, he says, Abraham wasn't justified by circumcision either. Now, circumcision was the mark that you belonged to God's people. It was necessary if you were going to be counted in the ranks of Israel. God told Abraham to be circumcised, and the Jewish teachers taught that he had to do this in order to become righteous. And that the same thing was also necessary for anybody who wants to be righteous now. But Paul says that's not true. Because the scriptures clearly say otherwise. He's circumcised in Genesis chapter 17. But away back in chapter 15, he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in other words, circumcision was a seal of the covenant that he already had with God. It was an outward sign of what had already taken place on the inside by his believing. Circumcision wasn't the thing that made him righteous. So the Gentiles in the Roman church didn't need to be circumcised, even though some of the Jews said they should. It counted for absolutely nothing. Paul says that Abraham is the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness could be counted to them as well, who walk in the footsteps of faith. Now, I might be speaking to somebody this morning who was christened or baptized whenever you were a baby, and In the back of your head, you might be relying on that. You might be trusting that you're okay with God because your mother and your father believed. Because you were sprinkled whenever you were a week or two old and you were baptized into the ranks of the church. You might think, everything's okay, that's me, sort of. Well, the bad news is, it counts for nothing. Just like circumcision was... Baptism is meant to be a sign of the covenant or the agreement that we have with God already by believing. It's an outward sign of our inner faith. Baptism without faith means absolutely nothing. There's no rite or ceremony that can make any difference whatsoever to how we stand before the Lord. Having faith of your own, having personal faith in Jesus is the only thing that makes any difference. Saying, I believe that Jesus died for me. And that also means that there is nothing that we can add on to our salvation. We have nothing to contribute after the fact. Yes, we're baptized after we believe to obey the Lord's command as a sign of our justification. But it doesn't make our justification more certain. It doesn't make our justification more secure. Nothing can. It's not some kind of insurance, just in case our faith wasn't quite enough. 
in case we didn't believe in exactly the right way, in case we didn't pray just the right prayer. There's no prayer or creed that we need to recite after we have faith. There's no routine or plan that we have to follow. We are fully justified by our faith in what happened on Calvary. And Paul develops that argument one step further in verses 13 to 17 by saying that Abraham wasn't justified by the law either. Now, the blessings that God gave to Abraham, an an offspring and an inheritance, didn't depend on Abraham keeping some kind of set of rules. It was an unconditional promise. It depended simply on what God was going to do. And it really pointed in many ways ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the promised Messiah who would come through Abraham's line and to an eternal inheritance, eternal life in him for the whole world, not just for Israel. And Paul wants to make crystal clear that it is impossible to inherit that eternal life by following the law of Moses. Ever since the time of Moses, 430 years after Abraham, the Jews had been trying to reach God by keeping this law that he had given, which included the Ten Commandments. But Paul says it doesn't bring justification to anybody. All the law brings is God's wrath, because no one's able to keep the law. It's too perfect. It's too holy. The law was really meant to let people see how impossibly high God's standards were and how short everybody falls so that people would turn to God in faith instead, so that they would look to him as their justifier. But, of course, the Jews still tried to get there on their own steam. They still tried to get there by themselves. What God really wanted was people to believe his promise like Abraham had. A law and a promise are two completely opposite things, aren't they? It's like the difference between your mother saying, I'll give you some chocolate cake if you do everything I say between now and lunchtime. And your mother saying, I'll give you some chocolate cake. One of them depends on how well we follow the rules. And the other depends on how reliable your mother is. Abraham had absolutely no choice but to rely on God's promise. Because there was absolutely no way that he could make any of this happen by himself. He was every bit as powerless to reach this inheritance as we are. Because he and his wife couldn't even have children. They were both nearly a 100 years old. And Sarah was barren. To look at them you would wonder where this great nation that God had promised was going to come from. Paul is really blunt about it, and he says they were both as good as dead. And this might come as a shock, but he says something very similar about us in his letter to the Ephesian church. He says that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were dead in our law-breaking, spiritually without life, unable to reach the standard and facing eternal death because of it. Now, you might know what the Bible says you should and shouldn't do. 
what God requires of you. And you might even be doing your best to live your life by that. Maybe you check off those Ten Commandments one by one. I don't kill. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. I honor my father and mother most of the time. So I'm doing all right. What about the one that says, you shall not lie? Or the one that says, you shall not covet? How many of us can honestly say we've never told a lie? Or we've never wanted something that doesn't belong to us? Trying really hard to stay within those lines doesn't work. Because we are dead in our sin. The sin inside us, our sinful nature, won't let us keep God's rules as perfectly as we would need to. That's why we have to hope in God's promise like Abraham did. That's why we have to hope in Christ. Christ was the law made flesh. He was the only one who ever kept all of God's commandments and all of God's laws absolutely perfectly. He never transgressed even once. He was completely and utterly guiltless. But the amazing thing is, he became guilty for us. He became guilty so that we would have a way to go free. Isaiah tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that can bring us peace with God by believing in him. Which brings Paul to verses 17 to 22, where he categorically affirms that it wasn't by works It wasn't by circumcision. It wasn't by the law. All of those things came later. It was by faith alone that Abraham was justified. Whenever he was powerless, whenever he was lifeless, he simply believed what God had said he would do. He hoped against hope. However hopeless it might have looked. And what did God do? God kept his promise. God brought new life from death by giving Abraham and Sarah a son. It was nothing Abraham did. And it didn't even have anything to do with the strength of Abraham's faith. That didn't come into it. It was all about the person that he had placed his faith in. The only one who can bring life from lifelessness. He was absolutely certain of God's power. He was absolutely certain of God's faithfulness. Those two qualities were the bedrock of Abraham's belief. Whenever you're getting some work done at your house, maybe if you're getting a new kitchen or a new bathroom or you're getting getting an extension put on, you're more than likely to use somebody you know to do the job, aren't you? Somebody you know you can trust. Somebody who's got a proven track record. Somebody you know has got both the ability and the dependability to actually carry out the work properly. And this morning, we've seen God's ability. And we've seen God's dependability. We've seen his power and his faithfulness to a man who was just like us. 
who was imperfect and weak and unable and dead in his sins. But we've also seen how God kept his word to Abraham. And God has promised each of us that even though we're dead, whoever believes in his son will not perish. We won't face his judgment. We'll have everlasting life. Because he loves you and he loves me. The cross is his unconditional promise to you. And all you need to do is to believe it. He will never, ever fail to keep that promise. Abraham's confidence in God was not misplaced. And neither will ours be. Which is the point that Paul's been building up to throughout this whole chapter. That all of us, whoever we are, wherever we're from, however guilty we might be, will be justified by faith. Just the same as Abraham was. Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised again for our justification. He's taken your place. He has faced God's wrath for you. He died to put our sin to death and he rose from the dead again to bring us new life. He's done everything that ever needed to be done. Whenever God the Father raised his son back to life, he was showing that he had accepted his work on your behalf. He was showing that he had accepted what Christ did on the cross as full payment for our sin. And the amazing thing about his approval of Jesus is that it means that all of us who believe in him, who rest our faith in Christ, we are also approved. We are accepted by the Father. We are accepted in the beloved, Ephesians says. Justified forever. And because Jesus is alive this morning, because he has been raised for our justification, we have an even greater reason to be sure of God's dependability even than Abraham did. He will never fail us because he's alive forevermore. He will never fail to hold us up as not guilty before his Father. And the inheritance that he has stored up in heaven is ours for all of eternity in him. So can I leave you with this question this morning? Are you justified? What are you counting on? What are you believing in? If you're depending on what you can do, or what you have done, or what kind of person you are, doesn't count. However great those things might be. The only thing that counts and the only thing that will ever count is the cross of Jesus Christ. That Christ died and rose again for you. In a few moments I'm going to hand back to Will but before I do we're just going to take a moment or two and we're going to close our eyes and we're going to reflect on what God's been telling us in his word. And if you haven't believed in Christ for yourself, then why don't you, just in these few moments, quietly ask him to come into your life? Now, I'm not asking anybody to say anything out loud or to come up to the front. Just in the quietness of your heart, why don't you place your faith 
in God's Son. Just say, I believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for me so that I could stand not guilty. And if you do that, you'll be justified forever. Accepted in the beloved. We'll take just a few moments and then I'll hand back to Will.